Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading is from Jonah, chapter 1, verses 7 through 17, or page 451 in your house Bible. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is it that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them so. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, so it's a great pleasure to be able to welcome um, a friend here as of today. We just met this morning, so I don't want to be misleading here. Um, but a friend uh, and a brother in Christ. Um, and so uh, this is Eric. Eric, come on up, man. Um, and he is a professor at PBA in biblical studies. Is that right? Right. I got it right. And, uh, and also the interim pastor at Oasis Church, which meets in Conway Gardens. And so um, Pastor Ryan is actually preaching there this morning, right. and Eric has come um, graciously to, um, to service this morning. And, and so, um, Eric, man, I'd love to just pray for you before let's you begin. Do. Is that all right? That's fine. All right. So, church, you just agree with me, and let's just uh, let's pray for our brother here. Lord, I'm really grateful for the ability to um, share ministry with brothers and sisters. Um, to share the burden and the load because it's it's heavy and um and lord it's so encouraging to um to meet new brothers and sisters who love you and are about the same thing that they want to see jesus your name glorified in this city christ i pray that your name would be glorified this morning that your spirit would be upon this man, anoint him to speak your words through your word today. And um, God, I pray that he would just speak truth to us, that we would be ready to receive whatever you wanna say to us, Lord, that we would be ready 
and that we would obey whatever you say. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Josiah. I uh, need to introduce my wife. This is Patty. I know you don't want to do this, but would you stand up, sweetheart? We are delighted to be here. Um, I um, am not just a professor. I'm very much a country boy. I'm the only professor on the campus who has NASCAR sheet metal on his wall. I'm an outdoorsman. I really like to hike. We have three kids, uh, Rachel, John Luke, and William. And Rachel is married and has two grandchildren, Leah, who will be five in a few weeks, and Nico, who will be three in December. Okay, I passed that test. I did the eyeball thing. So thank you, Heather, for reading the word for us. Um, I'd like to pray too, so we'll get to the preaching, but I promised Ryan that I was going to pray for him today. He'll start preaching a little later, maybe in about 15 minutes, and he's going to pray for us in this body here. So join with me. Father, I thank you for my new friend, Ryan, and what a great brother he is, what a great shepherd. And I lift him up today as he fills in in my series, Recognizing Jesus. Lord, all of us have our own conceptions of who you are, and we are constantly being forced to see deeper, recognizing who you really are. I lift up Oasis today that they would be receptive to what you have for them and that you would bless my friend. And Lord, I turn to us now, and like everyone else, I'm praying that our hearts are open to you. Lord, I don't deserve to stand here. I am a fallen man, deeply in need of your mercy. And so I pray today that your word would shine and that I could hide in the shadow of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of today's message is Hounded by the Offensive Grace of God. But I want to start by telling you a little story. Um, I uh, didn't start out as a professor. Um, I started out in student affairs. I was a resident director of a men's dormitory at a Christian college in Missouri called Evangel, and that sort of stuck while I continued my education, and I did that for several years and came down to Florida at Palm Beach Atlantic, we call it PBA, worked at the West Palm Beach campus, and uh, was a supervisor of those over residence halls. And uh, the Lord called me, kicking and screaming, into a life of handling university student discipline at Christian colleges, and that was my first call in life. And it was probably the hardest job I've ever done, but the most fruitful job. We saw several students give their life to Christ during that time. But it had its problems. Uh, when Facebook first came out, um, I guess for context, because if we have UCF people, you may have a shock at this. But at PBA, you're not allowed to drink on campus and only allowed to drink off campus if you're of age and only allowed to have a very small amount. <laughs> Uh, well below the, the legal limit. Of course, some Christian colleges don't allow any alcohol at all, but that's neither here nor there. And when Facebook came out, we were scrambling to figure out what to do with it. <clears throat> and uh, after a year or so, one of the other RDs, resident directors, just could not get over his conscience and printed off pages and pages and pages of our students drinking <laughs> and turned it in. Um, so this is just an example of how difficult it was. And I, I went home, I had Patty to lunch that day, and I said, things are about to change for a few months. You're not going to see me much, but we've got to do this. And one night I worked till 10 p.m. 
couldn't sleep, took a shower, went back to the office and started working at 2 a.m. Um, but it was the hardest thing I ever did, but the, the most um, fruitful ministry I'd ever done. The hardest thing I've ever done that's the most awesome thing I've ever done is be a parent. Um, but over time, um, we, our campus sort of became known for the way we did redemptive discipline, loving people through hard times, and we practiced ridiculous mercy, offensive mercy, as we're talking about today. And we were a part of a national conference called the Association for Students in Christian Development. And we would go to this conference every year and learn how to do this better and better. At my campus, I was a a little bit of a known entity, a little bit of a celebrity by the younger staff coming in. I I hate to use that word because celebrity is too strong, but uh, we came up with a method of doing discipline that worked and students came to Christ and Anyhow, long story short, my vice president, Marianne Cyril, unbeknownst to me, had nominated me for the Bamford Award. Uh, and that's an award in the nation of this, these, these uh, professionals for a, a, a professional with less than 10 years experience to be you know, celebrated that year. I'd gone to the conference every year for 10 years. And, uh, or nine years or something, and never missed a banquet. I was like this with my boss, but we were like husband and wife. We were so close, we could yell at each other and get away with it. Not that we did that regularly, we just had a tight relationship. And this year, it was going to be in Indianapolis, Indiana. And uh, so um, she calls me and said, listen, I'm going to be visiting relatives in Tennessee, and I've got to fly in. Can you pick me up at the airport? And I said, sure, I'd love to. I'll, I'll rent a car or something and drive down to Indianapolis because the conference was actually north of Indianapolis at uh, Taylor University. And uh, I'll check out the racetrack. They got a great tour there and I'll catch you and, and drive back up. Well, after I agreed to do that, she found out I had actually been given the award. And it was her job to make sure I was there. So I arrived that night before something, and I was finally beginning to relax a little bit as a professional, and I thought, I'm not going to go to the banquet this year. So I didn't shave. I'm not even sure I had a shower. I was grizzly, and I had a pullover Izod-type shirt. And uh, um, I get a call, and she goes, oh, guess what? Um, Can you get someone else to take me? I'd really hate for you to miss the banquet. And I said, no, I'm... I'm, I'm fine. I, I really want to do this. I've been to the banquet years and years. Okay. She hangs up. Hours later, she calls back and says, listen, uh, Kevin, who had become my in-between supervisor at the time, or maybe he was a colleague at the time. She goes, he's going to get me. You don't have to come. Seriously. And I said, listen, Marianne, I've not missed a banquet ever. I'm going to go see the racetrack. I'll ride with him. It was only three bucks to take the tour of Indianapolis Speedway. And uh, I'm going to do this. And so we could do that a little bit with each other. And she goes, uh, okay, hung up. <laughs> so we go down, and Kevin's driving kind of fast. We go to the racetrack, paid pay the tour, awesome racetrack. And I, we get two calls while we're touring the track. And it's Marianne. And, and the first time I go, what's up? He goes, she's a little upset. She wants us at the banquet. I said, what in the, what's her problem? And uh, so I'm sort of getting a little irritated, and, and I'm going to finish this tour. And so we, uh, we look around a little bit more. Phone rings again. It's her again. And he tells me what's going on. I, I don't believe her. I just do not believe her. So 
uh, we finished the tour, and I'm wrestling with this. I don't want to be mad at her because she's a good friend of mine, but she is my boss, but this is not like her. So we're headed back, and uh, we stop it. I wanted something to eat. I said, we're going to get something to eat. I don't care if I'm late to the banquet. So he stops at the subway, and we're driving back at 85 miles an hour on I-65 North, I think. And later I tell Patty, I think I'm on the phone. I said, this guy's crazy. <laughs> Anyhow, we get to the banquet, unshaven, jeans, lolling in halfway, you know, it's the middle of the speaker. And I walk by one of my buddies, Darwin, who we're just like punching buddies, you know. He goes, Eric, Eric. I go, what? He goes, you won the Bamford. I just kept strolling. I said, shut up. <laughs> and then my old boss from Evangel, who I didn't get along with, who never jokes with me, Gina, she goes, Eric, you won the Bamford. And I thought, and I don't deserve it. One of my colleagues accepted it on my behalf. I couldn't have, didn't have time to dig up that picture. But I received grace that day from a dear, dear friend that I'm just nuts over still today. She's a great supervisor, a great boss. And I received mercy that I did not deserve. Well, that's a lot like Jonah. Jonah 1.1 1, 1 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. Now, Assyria, you heard a little bit about it last week under Ryan's message, but Assyria was the epitome of evil in that day. Just really bad. Here's a uh, quote from Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal Prophet. Syria was well known for depicting torture, dismembering, and decapitations. Decapitations of enemies in grisly detail, they would depict this on large stone relief panels. Assyrian history is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. After capturing enemies, the Assyrians would typically cut off their legs and one arm so they could shake the hand of the victim and mock them before they killed them. They forced friends and family members to parade with the decapitated heads of their loved ones on elevated poles. They burned adolescents alive. The Assyrians have been called a terrorist state. Now, lest we think the Bible irrelevant for today, I searched for an image as strong as I could but appropriate for our audience, and this is what I found. By my count on Wikipedia, radical Muslim groups are many, but the radical group, uh, group, Muslim group ISIS beheaded 301 people from 2014 to 2017. Just recall the image of those yellow jumpsuits and their captors standing over them in black suits with a knife in their hand. And they did that while people were alive. The fact that Israel was at war with Assyria, the ancient beheading terrorist of his day, and that at some few years later or decades later after this prophecy, Assyria conquered Israel and deported them in 722 B.C., and the fact that the Jewish people decided to keep the book of Jonah in their canon tells us much. In fact, the book of Nahum, two books earlier in our Bible, two books later in the Jewish canon, is a prophecy against Syria. God eventually holds Syria accountable for their brutalness. 
kings later after the king in, in uh, Jonah's time. But that's a prophecy of Nahum decreeing that prophecy, that, that destruction. So Jonah had his reasons. Yet sometime, someone later, I think there's good reason to believe it was Jonah, but the scripture doesn't tell us who wrote it. After they were captured by the Assyrians, someone decided to write this down and keep the book. Flip over to Psalm 137 a moment if you have your Bibles. Watching the time here. This is a psalm of lament and an imprecatory psalm, a, a revenge psalm. And uh, people, many people don't realize that, that any emotion you have, you can find in the psalms and pray and give that over to God. And this psalm was written in Babylon years later. Um, and Babel was the, Babylon was the country that conquered the other half of Israel. But before that, they conquered Assyria. So you, you have to know what kind of military might Babylon must have been in order for them to take out Assyria. So while the rest, other half of Israel, Judah, is in captivity, they write this psalm. And they're, they're just begging God to take it power over their, their enemies. Look at verses 8 and 9. Parents, read eight, verses 8 and 9. They're so caught up in revenge that they're praying for God to smash or to celebrate the person who smashes their enemies' babies against the rocks. I, just, I know that's a hard scripture to read, but that gets you into the idea that Jonah had his reasons. In fact, the, in the New Testament, we hear about the Samaritans, and those are the people that, over generations, had intermarried with the Assyrians and Israel. And that's why they were hated in the New Testament time. So to refresh our memory just a bit, I want us to walk through the Jonah story. Not everyone knows it. In fact, if we know it, when I was a kid, all I knew it was is so that I would know that God does miracles. Uh, God can keep a guy alive in a fish, and that's not the point of the story at all. So a little spoiler alert, you're going to hear um, how the story ends, but I'm just going to brush on that and let Ryan finish out the book. So in Jonah 1, Jonah is told to arise, get up, and go go to Nineveh and to call out against them. Of course, he doesn't do that. Instead, he gets on a boat and heads the opposite way. And um, the distance to Nineveh is about three, three days walk or something, 60 miles, I think. But the distance to Tarshish is 3,000 nautical miles. It's to the edge of the known world at the time. He goes as far as he can. He gets on the boat uh, and a storm comes up and the sailors become afraid of this storm. And so uh, popular in that time was the belief that gods caused uh, storms. Uh, some of you know the story of Odysseus who can't get home because the gods are uh, preventing him. They ca cause all kinds of storms and problems. So the sailors at that time had enough sense to know that God, some god is probably calling, causing this. So they call out to their god. That's in verse 5. But Jonah went down, and the down part is repeated. So there's a metaphor, a, a theme we're getting. He's going down not just physically in the boat, but he's going down spiritually. He goes down, down into the inner part of the boat, and falls out. And the word there is almost for a coma. He is out cold. The captain comes down and uses the very same two words that God uses to Jonah. Arise and call out. 
And the, the storyteller here is an artist. He's a master at storytelling, and he wants us to get that repetition. It actually will happen again later in the story. <clears throat> Arise and call out. Perhaps your God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. In fact, perhaps the God will listen to us is the same thing that the king of Nineveh will say later in chapter 3, verses 9. So you've got the sailors calling out to God, you've got the captain of the ship calling out to God, and you'll later have the king of Nineveh calling out to God in the end of the book. Now look at your scripture there, verse, um, right around verse 6 and 7. Where does Noah pray? Noah, uh, not Noah. Where does Jonah pray or call out to God? We've got silence. You know why we have silence? Because he doesn't. Everybody's praying. Everybody is humbling themselves before God, but not him. One scholar says there's no evidence that he joined in the sailor's prayer meeting. So, uh, instead, they cast lots, and the lot falls to him. And when that happens, they all lean in really heavy on him. One person says they grilled him. And they have all these questions. Tell us, on whose account is his evil come on you? What is your occupation and where do you come from? Where is your country and of what people are you? Now, if you have a lot of questions for someone like that, are you going to be close to them leaning in or are you going to be backing off? What do, what do you sense in the text there? I don't know you guys. If, if this were Oasis, I'd be calling out people in the congregation. They'd be running for the doors. So feel free to talk up. I'm more of a teacher than a preacher. Would I be leaning in with those questions or would I be leaning back? You'd be leaning in, right? They're like, dude, the whole world is against us and you're supposed to be a prophet and you're snoozing. What's going on? So you just want to sense that feeling. Well, he replies, <clears throat> um, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. And some of your Bibles will have Lord in caps. Some of them will have God in caps. That is the Hebrew word Yahweh, which Jews don't pronounce to this day. So we'll say Adonai, but that's the personal name of God. I am, I fear Yahweh, that God of heaven. See, this is a polytheistic culture who made the sea and the, and the dry land. Well, Phoenician sailors worshipped Baal Shaman, which means Lord of the heaven. But what Jonah is saying is my God is Lord of the sea and the earth. Everything, the sea and the dry land. There were plenty of gods over this and that and the other, but few cultures had an idea of a God that was over all. The Greeks had Zeus, but even Zeus was a petulant, unreliable God. Notice now what happens. What do they do after that? The men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? Now, do you think they're leaning in now? Or are they leaning back? We have a complete reversal in the story, probably because Adonai is known. And when they hear he, he's running from Adonai, they're doubly afraid. They're completely shocked. So they ask, what should you do? What, what, what should you do that we won't die? And Jonah says, no worries. I'll repent and I'll pray right here and everything will be fine. Right? Is that what the text says? No. Instead, he says, pick me up and throw me in the sea, and the sea will quiet for you. Now I'm in verse 12. Take a look at that. 
What we're doing in the short time we have today is what scholars call a close reading. Uh, we don't do this. We read a story, we think we know the story, and we're done. But ancient Hebrew storytelling crafted every single word, uh, kind of, not kind of, almost exactly like what happens in movies today in the cutting room. They'll cut a script, they'll cut a scene, they'll put another scene here, they'll switch it, and they'll go, something's weak here, you need to film a new shot. They craft every single word. So look in verse 12, the opposition of me versus you and the repetition. Pick me, pick me up and hurl me into the sea and the sea will quiet down for you. You see, Jonah is working on an idea of reciprocal justice at the time. I'm the problem, you get rid of me and you'll be fine. In fact, Jonah is aware he's running from God and he's aware of the consequences and it's causing them that in this case, they are innocent, he's causing them to suffer. And he repeats himself in verse 13. Uh, no, no, not 13, the second half of 12. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So we have the me, you, reciprocal phrase going on twice. <clears throat> One scholar says, well, I've done it again. First time for you guys. This happens all the time. What's going on probably is rather than repenting, I mean, has anyone ever been really mad and out of line with God and you just knew you were wrong and you changed right then? That's not what happens with me. Usually when I'm a jerk, and yes, the guy speaking today is a boneheaded sinner, if I say something to Patty that I shouldn't and she calls me out, it's about three days before I really realize what kind of an idiot I'm in. And that's what's going on with Jonah. He's in this mess, and rather than turn on a dime, he's like, I might as well die. In fact, that's the kind of justice, God, you ought to do. One scholar thinks Jonah is trying to show God what true reciprocal justice is. forgiven. If you look ahead of the story, he tells God, I knew that if I went there, you would forgive him. Let's flip forward to that. By the way, this is the entire book of Jonah with notes. The entire book of Jonah is three pages. And I just thought a little reminder would be go on Bible Gateway or something and print off that in three pages and read it two or three times every week in this sermon series and practice a close reading and look at it over and over. We make such a big deal over our Bible devotions or our quiet time with God or how to commune with God and it's just simply learning every day and growing closer. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. After Nineveh repents, here's our spoiler alert, this is what Jonah says. Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? And I'm going to paraphrase here. I knew it. I knew it. That is why I made haste to flee Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Man, he's nasty. He's actually quoting the description of God found uh, in Exodus 34, which is repeated six times in the Old Testament. Let me read that to you. The Lord passed before Moses 
and proclaimed, Adonai, Adonai, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, keeping loyal love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But he by no means leaves the guilty unpunished. God is a God of justice, responding to the transgression of fathers by dealing with the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now what's important about that text is a thousand is supposed to be contrasted with three and four. God's abundance is ever flowing over and over and over again. And the sin goes to the third and fourth generation, which is later reversed in the book of Ezekiel. God says, no longer shall sin be passed on from generation to generation. That's what Manoah's, uh, Moses, no, Jonah is mad about. He's mad. He's offended by the grace of God. You can go to the next slide, Josiah. He's mad, offended by the grace of God. Now, I also want to point out that Jonah, and is anyone missing a handout? We have handouts. If you don't have one, just raise your hand. I'm sure someone will get one to you, okay? Back up a minute and look at the prayer that you'll hear preached on next week. Chapter 2. He goes down into a watery grave, down into the waves, down in the oceans. Verse 4. I'll never lay eyes on your holy temple again. Verse 5, my head was all tangled in seaweed at the bottom of the sea where the mountains take root as far as a body can go. Now, Jonah probably wrote this down later. I don't think he carried pen and paper or papyrus and quill into the, into the well or the fish's body. But he's describing the plummet down. The story hasn't changed yet. But look back in our text, chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Notice that the fish rescue comes before Jonah describes the plummeting down into the depths of the sea. The storyteller is doing something called fronting. He's not telling you that God caught him with the fish when he came out of the boat. And then he went down in the belly of the fish. If you read the prayer... It's all about being in the water, being covered in seaweed, being drugged down to the depths of Sheol. Sheol is the place of death in Huber thinking at that time, and it was physically thought to be under the sea. And Jews hated the sea. They hated the sea. It's, it just tells you how far Jonah's willing to go to get away from the God. He's willing to go out on a boat and risk his life. And now, for all Jonah thinks, he's dying. It's over. The first half of the prayer is him recalling that later. But the story writer, maybe Jonah himself, has put God's rescue in front of all of that. He's fronted it. Why has he done that? To show that God's grace, his offensive mercy, had nothing to do with Jonah. God's plan to save Jonah came before any prayer of repentance. And you can read on later that he agrees to do, that God, Jonah does pray and God saves him. Now again, not to, to take Ryan's uh, thunder next week, look at chapter 2, verse 8. Let's go verse 7. Look at I and me and I and me in verse 7. This is the prayer. When my life was slipping away, I remembered God. 
It's kind of like Tom Cruise in uh, Castaway. I make fire. You guys remember that? I remember God and my prayer got through to you. No, it didn't. God decided to rescue you before you ever went down. And then verse 8, look what he says. But those who worship hollow gods, God frauds, I'm reading from the message now, walk away from their only true love. The New English translation translates that forfeit. Now, when you forfeit a baseball game, you don't even get to get on the field. One player's not there, your coach does something he shouldn't, and you forfeit the game. You don't even get to play in the game. And that's Jonah's idea here. I call down God. You forfeit God just because you bow down to an idol. See, Jonah hasn't changed yet. This is the heart of Jonah who doesn't want to go preach that gracious mercy to Nineveh. This is not a good prayer. This is a bonehead prayer. This is a bonehead prayer totally. So he was offended by the grace of God. Now, I want you to look also at the literary structure of the text. I've told you that this is a very well-crafted story. Look at the literary structure. Let's go to the next slide. So the idea that ancient storytellers in the Bible were primitive unfortunately has trickled through our seminaries for a couple hundred years, and we won't go into why, but that started in the 1750s. It started changing in the U.S. in the 1950s. We now know that ancient storytellers were masters. All the literary techniques, if you go out to Barnes & Noble over here and get the book, How to Read a Book for All It's Worth, or, yeah, I think that's what it is. I may be confusing that with How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, but there's a, a book on how to read books. They learned this from the ancients. Look at the structure. There's two major scenes. On the left, you have Jonah, the pagans, and the sea. On the right, you have Jonah, the pagans, and the city. And all of these are responded. Now, there's several different scholars who've tried to outline the book of Jonah, but this is Tim Keller, uh, pastor in New York City, uh, author of the prodigal, the prodigal Prophet. This is his outline. Now, what does this matter? Is it just beauty? No, it's beauty to show us something. Next slide. What is highlighted over and over and over and over again is the response of everyone else in the story and the failure of Jonah to respond in the story. The sailors uh, respond. They repent. Well, first, Jonah responds poorly to God's message to go tell them to repent. But the pagans, they pray. The captain prays. Maybe God will, will, will save us. Their response is noted in the text as being better. They sacrifice to God. And it's not God in the text. It's that personal name, Adonai. They make vows to him. And some scholars believe they convert to Judaism right there. And then you go to the second half of the book. When he eventually goes to Nineveh, the pagans respond at the lowest level. The, the city starts fasting, starts turning to God. Then the leader, the king of Nineveh, responds and repents. And But at the end of the book, God calls Jonah to repent for his hateful spirit, and he still won't do it. He still won't do it. Which leads us to our second point. Make sermons shorter. No, I don't think that is the point. Hounded by this offensive mercy, Jonah refuses to repent. And instead... 
would rather sacrifice himself for the sailors. Hounded by this offensive mercy, Jonah refuses to repent and instead tries to sacrifice himself for the sailors. He doesn't pray, remember? He should have repented and should have prayed, but instead he throws himself over sea. Terence Fratham is the scholar quote I was looking for earlier. Even more, refusing to change his convictions, which presumably have stopped the storm, Jonah will show God what justice means. He will take it upon himself, the punishment he deserves. God, however, refuses to be bound by strict canons of justice and mercifully delivers Jonah by means of the fish. I'll show you. I'll just die. He didn't know the fish was coming. We know that, but if you go into the story world, no one knows about the fish. The sailors, to their credit, they give Jonah the benefit of the doubt. They know he's going to die, and they say, Lord, deliver us from this man's innocent blood. They're willing to call him innocent, but he's not innocent. Later on, the story ends with a cliffhanger. Chapter 4, verse 11. God has finished the story. Jonah has told him, this is why I didn't want to do it. He goes out of the city to pout, and God raises up the plant. He takes shade under the plant in the hot sun, which God does out of graciousness. And then the plant dies. And God, Jonah is mad. In the south, we'd say mad as snot. And so God says, you angry? Doggone right, I'm angry. I'm as angry as I can be, the text says. And so God finishes with this question. And should I not pity Nineveh? I'm in chapter 4, verse 11. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And that's a question mark, and that's the last verse of the Scripture. Josiah, can we go back a, a slide? Their response is better than Jonah's, and God teaches Jonah mercy via a plant, but another way to arrange this is another green bullet there. Where does Jonah respond? The text ends with an unanswered question, waiting for Jonah to get it together and to repent for his wicked, wicked heart. So, what about that last verse in our text today, verse 17? Jonah's in the well for three days and three nights, and then God spits him back up on land. What does Jesus say about this text? Does Jesus mention this? In the New Testament, yes, he does. Matthew 12, 38 through 31, Jesus says, in response to the religious, pompous people of the day, people who think they know God, just like Jonah thinks he knows God, but their hearts are hard, they want a sign. Jesus says, I'm not giving you a sign. Except for the sign of Jonah. Verse 40 of Matthew 12. Just, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, implied, and you won't, and behold, something that greater than Jonah is here. Luke repeats that passage and underscores their repentance. Jesus makes it very clear that God intended back then to use the story of Jonah to
to point to Christ. Yes, according to Old Testament law, blood must be shed for the sacrifice of sins, but the offensive mercy of God in God's mercy economy, that doesn't have to work that way. The sacrifice that's required is not a petulant God like Zeus or an angry sea God in a tit-for-tat, petty back-and-forth of justice, but instead a crazy love, a stinking, crazy good news that rather than hold us accountable, God would rather take on human form and climb up on a cross and die rather than hold Eric Loudermilk accountable for his boneheadedness. And Nineveh responds appropriately to that grace. And so, next point on your outline, Jonah's sacrifice, scholars tell us, is a foreshadowing of Christ's sacrifice for us. Now, we could spend, and pastors do, spend a whole day on that point alone. But for the point of what we're doing today, we're not going to stay there. What does that mean for us today? Well, let me ask you this. Who is your other today? Psychologists talk about the verbal action, not the noun, the other, but the action of othering. And othering is when you treat someone else as inferior to yourself because you don't know them. You know what's at the heart of being offended at the offensive mercy of God? You know what's at the heart of that, that attitude? It's the belief that I'm better than you. And I'm better than an Iraqi. I'm better than that stinking immigrant who's cashing me out at Walmart. By God, if you give me a gun, I'll go to Iraq and show them what's going on. Or now it's not Iraq, it's Iran, right? Who are you kidding, Loudermilk? Next slide, Josiah. Are you kidding me? You want us to think that way? Yes, I do. Christ's sacrifice is a foreshadowing of his calling for us. Now, before we go ahead, I jumped ahead. The picture on the right is the caravan coming, I think, from Honduras this last year in the spring to the U.S., which so many are upset about. And I'm actually not making political lines here. There's truth and godly folk on both sides of that argument. That's why it's a mess. So my question to you, well, let's go to the next slide, Josiah. Christ's sacrifice is indeed a foreshadowing of his calling for us. John tells us that no greater love, love hath any man than to lay down his life for his friends. And we're also told, you know, someone might lay down their life for a friend, but what about for an enemy? Jonah, so let me just, let me just ask. Patty, honey, you ready? We're, we're going to Columbia in September to teach in another country. Her last mission trip, she, got, she had a great trip. And on the way to the airport or the night before, caught a bug. And ladies, you'll get this. Threw up publicly in the wastebasket in the lobby of the Port-au-Prince airport. Was sick and delirious on the flight home. And was so drugged up the next four days, she doesn't remember any in those four days. But we're going to Columbia this fall, and she's in there. We just renewed her passport. So instead, honey, next this fall, let's go to Iran. You and me. And I'm going to march through Iran 
you know, I, I'm preaching this, but I'm, you know, I'll do it if you tell me, but I'm hoping you don't. <laughs> and I'm going to march through Iran and say, repent, you heathens, because in three days, Iran's going to be overthrown. How long do you think I'll last? So the call to Jonah was not just to preach. The call to Jonah was to die for the Assyrians who decapitate. And so, am I serious? Yes. Christ's sacrifice of dying for his enemies, Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrated his love for us, that Christ died for us while we were still his enemies. Before we ever converted, he gave his life for us. That's what Christ is calling us to. Now, stay buckled. We're almost done. Here's where the beauty of the story comes in. Because some of you, even me, I mean, I really am nervous about preaching that. I don't want to go to Iraq or Iran. My prayer is I'll go anywhere you want me to, but man, some places you're going to have to do a number on me because I'm an idiot. I like my house. I like my grandbabies. I don't, I'm, just, I'm no better than Jonah. The values of Jesus are way better than ours, but the grace of God is way above that. You see, Jonah's relationship with Yahweh seems to never be questioned. He never repents in the story. I think he did. I think he wrote it, and I think he wrote it years later, looking back after God delivered them for their own sin. And others must have agreed with Jonah because the story has been kept in the Jewish canon, along with Nahum, the prophecy against Assyria. So even though this is a hard sermon, it's a sermon filled with grace. Because we too, who are offended at the thought, just think of the yellow, think of the yellow jerseys on the floor and the ISIS member in the black garb with the knife and the guy in the yellow jersey is awake. You want to die for that guy? Are you ready to? You know, I can't answer that question for me. I don't know that I'm ready for that. And I pray that I don't have to. But people have done that before. They have died for their enemies in front of them and it changed them. So despite the fact that that call is tough, we too get the offensive grace of God. That was what makes it so crazy. So you don't have to get that today. In fact, God's not calling you tomorrow, today, to walk out to your car and die. Is this your husband here? You ready to die for him in the parking lot? Not really? You'd rather stick around for a while. You know, you'll push him in front of traffic. The values of Jesus are way above ours. They were way above Jonah. They're way above the Democrat Party. They're way above the Republican Party. They were way above traditional Israel's values. Hey, they'd much rather hear Nahum's prophecy against Syria. Not the least, way above Jonah's. And finally, the values of Jesus, this is what's really shocking, are way above traditional American Christianity's values. The values of Jesus are way above the traditional American Christianity's values. Most of us want to slip into a slot. Oh, oh that feels good. I'll stay right there, Jesus. I'll stay right there. I've been on one mission trip. I was looking over my resume the other day for somebody, and I caught myself counting the countries and how many different countries I've been. We all do it. I've got that check mark off. I'm preaching at Ryan's church. It's a hip church. I'm wearing jeans. 
I couldn't get away with a shirt tail out today. She said, uh-uh. Fat boys don't do shirt tails out. We all do it. We all do it. We get in that oh, comfortable spot. But don't root me out and make me live radically. The church has always gone through these cycles. Somebody will break away and say, we've gotten into a rut. We need to get out of that rut and do something new. This is why we have different denominations, because denominations are made up of boneheads. And after a while, we get comfortable in our situation. We get entrenched in our ways, and we forget what it means to follow the radical call of Jesus. And so new people come along and say, no, you've got to do this way. And we listen, and we grow, and we move over. You know, the Moravians had this great prayer meeting for 100 years old running. How many Moravian churches do you know today? It's because we're humans. Before we got Christ, we needed him, and after we got Christ, we needed him. So yes, the values of Jesus always have been and always will be above the values of traditional religion, including the values of traditional American Christianity. So let's wrap it up. Take your notes. Next slide. Josiah. Am I willing to sacrifice myself for blank? So if you'll take your notes, and I don't have one copy, you see a line at the bottom, I want you to fold along that line. We have a little activity. You've got a week-long altar call. And I want you to pray. We're going to take a moment of silence and ask the Lord to speak to you. Now, he's not calling you to die in the parking lot. He's calling you to walk across the street. He's calling you when you're at Walmart to read the name tag of the young lady from the other country who's checking you out. He's calling you the next time you see an LGBTQ plus person to love them. And don't get me wrong, I don't have this down. There is a particular TV show with an effeminate man who hosts it that every time I see that show, I've begun to pray because that's my other. Southern boys don't do well with that. We are called to love those. And I want you to write in that box who God's calling you to begin to love. We'll take just a moment and pray. And then I want to, as I say the prayer, I want you to tear that off and carry it with you all week. Let's take a moment of silence. Father, we each know that we are offended by your grace, but we are hounded by that grace because we are driven to it over and time again. Speak a name to us now as we write it down, Lord. And help us this week to take little steps. They're never big steps because it's all dependent on you working in us. We can't do it. We'll carry this sheet around this week and have a week-long response to your word as we're hounded by the offensive mercy of God. Amen. So let's hear you tear those sheets off. Let's just hear you tear those sheets off like Sunday school. Carry that name with you. Josiah.